Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Well, welcome. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society, uh, where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense and to keep you out of the clutches of charlatans and make sure you're up to date on what is happening in the world of science. And uh, my background is chemistry. I think that chemistry is a science that ties all the other sciences together because when you have an understanding of what molecules are all about and how they can interact, you have a pretty good idea for how things in the world work. Well, we usually start off with a couple of questions so that you can put your thinking caps on and we will try to answer these uh, throughout the show. First, there's one question that we still have left over from last week. In 1832, Scottish physician Thomas Latta pioneered the treatment of cholera victims with an intravenous injection. What did he inject? If you know the answer to that, you call us at 514-790-0800. That's also the number that you can call for whatever question that you may have. You can also text to 514-800. But uh, let me now give you the questions for today. In 1763, as the French and Indian War, and yes, and the term still is used, Indian War, as the French and Indian War came to an end, British commander Lord Geoffrey Amherst suggested that the number of natives loyal to the French be, quote, reduced with a form of biological warfare. What was that suggestion? And one more, what work of fiction precipitated the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 in the United States? So there we go to start us off the three questions. The first one left over about Thomas Latta and what he injected in 1832. Then the question about the French and Indian War and how did uh, Lord Geoffrey Amherst, who was a general in the British Army, suggest that the population of the natives that were loyal to the French be reduced? And what work of fiction precipitated the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 in the U.S.? If you know the answer to any of those, get on the line at 514-790-0800. You can also text to 514-800. In the meantime, I want to talk about rhodium. That's an element and it costs more than $500 a gram. Why? First, because it is extremely rare. It's one of the rarest elements in the Earth's crust. Second, because it is difficult to isolate. And third, because it is in very high demand by the automobile industry. The metal is an essential component of catalytic converters. And those, of course, are the devices that are attached to the tailpipe of gasoline-fueled vehicles. Why? Because they will cut down on pollution. So what is gasoline? Gasoline is not one single commodity, it's not one compound. It is a very complex mixture of hydrocarbons, 
Now, the term hydrocarbons refers to a class of molecules that are found mostly in petroleum that are composed essentially of carbon and hydrogen, as the term hydrocarbon obviously implies. When such a mixture is ignited by the spark plug in the cylinder of the engine, the gasoline ignites and it burns and it produces a large volume of gases that quickly expand. And when the gases expand, they push down on the piston. The piston, of course, turns the crankshaft, which in turn turns the wheels. Once the gases have done their job, they are wented through the exhaust. Now, the burning of these hydrocarbons yields mostly carbon dioxide, but it also forms some carbon monoxide. Carbon dioxide, of course, is the notorious greenhouse gas that is implicated in global warming. Uh, with roughly 20% of total carbon dioxide release coming from uh, road transport, that is the cars and then trucks that ply our roads. Catalytic converters cannot do anything about carbon dioxide emission. The carbon dioxide that is formed in the engine of the car just goes directly through the exhaust into the air. But catalytic converters can do something about carbon monoxide, uh, which is a highly toxic gas. Carbon monoxide, of course, is the gas that is, is uh, well known uh, for use by people who want to commit suicide in their garages. You know, they run a pipe from the exhaust into the car and uh, they can die very quickly because carbon monoxide displaces oxygen from hemoglobin. But anyway, the catalytic converter does eliminate most of the carbon monoxide. And that conversion relies on the catalytic activity of certain platinum and palladium compounds, which are in that uh, catalytic converter bonded to uh, a ceramic support. However, carbon dioxide and monoxide are not the only gases produced in an internal combustion engine. Air, of course, is composed of about 80% nitrogen and 19% oxygen with 1% of other gases such as argon. And under the influence of the heat that is generated when the engine is running, gases in the air can combine to form oxides of nitrogen. These are nitric oxide and nitrogen dioxide. Both of these gases are major pollutants. On exposure to sunlight, they react to yield nitric acid, and that is a major component of acid rain. They also form ozone, and that, of course, is a component of smog, and furthermore, ozone at ground level can impair respiration. This is the same ozone that in the stratosphere absorbs ultraviolet light. So there it's a good thing. At ground level, it's not. Nitrogen oxides can also irritate the eyes, nose, and the throat, and can even uh, cause shortness of breath. This is where rhodium comes in. When these gases pass over a catalyst formulated with the metal, they are converted into innocuous nitrogen. Of course, innocuous because nitrogen makes up 80% of the air anyway. A catalytic converter contains only a couple of grams of rhodium compounds. But that, believe it or not, is enough to make these devices attractive to thieves who then sell them to recyclers or to junkyards that unethically accept them, and they will buy them. With the increase in such thefts, authorities are putting the squeeze on dealers willing to buy used converters. Unfortunately, catalytic converters are rather easy to remove, 
A thief crawls under a car with a saw, and within minutes, he's off with the device. Should he crawl under an electric car, he'll be disappointed, of course, because electric cars don't burn gasoline, and therefore, they do not require a catalytic converter. The catalytic activity of rhodium compounds is put to use in other contexts as well. There are many chemical reactions that can be speeded up with rhodium uh, catalysts. For example, the synthesis of menthol. Uh, menthol is, is a substance that is produced in very large amounts. Why? Because it's in lip balms and cough medicines and decongestants, aftershaves, chewing gum, candies, all kinds of stuff like that. And it can be synthetically produced with rhodium catalyst. Although, of course, menthol can also be isolated from the peppermint plant, but it is cheaper to produce it uh, synthetically. Uh, finally, uh, rhodium can be used to electroplate jewelry. An extremely thin layer can make new pieces of jewelry look very bright and very shiny. Uh, that is, is kind of temporary. It wears off after a while, but uh, the new jewelry looks really, really neat. But the rhodium coating will not wear off the record that was given to Paul McCartney in 1979 by the Guinness Book of Records. Why was he given this? in recognition of being the all-time best-selling singer-songwriter. And uh, Guinness chose rhodium to formulate this uh, symbolic record to indicate that Paul McCartney's achievement deserves something more than a gold or a platinum record. Gold or platinum records, of, of course, uh, commemorate uh, sales of uh, uh, of, uh, you know, large numbers of, of, of records. Now, truth be told, uh, the record that was given to Paul McCartney is a rather large record, and it is not made totally of rhodium because that would be very expensive, although I suspect the Guinness Book of Records could have afforded that. Uh, but it does have a, a coating of rhodium. It is a much thicker coating than what would be put on jewelry to make the jewelry more attractive. So it is not going to wear off. And furthermore, that record is uh, is uh, encapsulated in, in plastic. And uh, uh, so uh, it has not lost any of, of the rhodium. So now you have an idea of why rhodium is so expensive. It's very rare, it's very difficult to get, and it is very, very important because it is required in uh, catalytic um, uh, converters. Most of the rhodium comes from uh, uh, South Africa, and it is a byproduct of the mining of platinum and, uh, and palladium ores. But as I said, very, very difficult to isolate. All right, now you know something about rhodium, Paul McCartney and catalytic converters. We're going to check uh, what traffic is all about and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, I do have an answer to a couple of the questions. They've been texted in for the first one about my question about what happened in 1832 when Scottish physician Thomas Latta uh, injected something into cholera victims intravenously, and I wanted to know what he injected. Of course, it was saline solution. Uh, cholera is a bacterial infection. It causes terrible diarrhea. That can lead to dehydration and death. And uh, Lata 
was a pioneer in treating cholera with uh, saline. Now, it doesn't mean that he was able to cure the disease, but he was able to keep people alive with the uh, intravenous solution until the body overwhelmed the uh, bacteria. Uh, some other questions that were uh, uh, texted in, why the COVID-19 vaccines have not yet been approved by the FDA? Well, it's not that they haven't been approved, but, but it's a step, stepwise process in the U.S. where first you have to have uh, emergency approval. And that is what uh, uh, happened. Uh, you, you, you can't just all of a sudden put something on, on the market uh, without uh, you know, the FDA having looked at all of the details of the studies. But sometimes when there's a crisis and it's an emergency, they will provisionally approve something. And that's what happened with the vaccine. It doesn't mean that they were not properly tested. It just means that that was the first step and they will eventually be uh, be approved. Now, someone else is again asking this question about uh, why magnets stick to the body after uh, being vaccinated. Uh, it just doesn't happen. I, I don't know how people come to this conclusion. Uh, there's nothing in that uh, injection that can make a magnet stick to the body. So if it does stick, uh, then it is because uh, either there's moisture on, on the body to which it sticks or, you know, you just pushed hard enough. Or I, I mean, there's absolutely no reason that it should stick to the body. And of course, I've tried it. I've, my friends have tried it just to, to be sure that there's nothing in there. And of course, there isn't. It, it doesn't stick. So I don't know why I, I, I keep getting uh, those uh, those questions. Uh, someone wants to know if uh, we'll be getting the third booster shot as they are doing in Israel. I suspect we will, uh, but uh, so far no pronouncements have been made here in Canada about uh, about that one. So, uh, I mean, <laughs> as far as this magnet thing goes, I don't know what to tell you except that that uh, uh, there's no scientific reason for it. Everyone that I've spoken to has tried it, has, did not find that it sticks. You have the odd person who finds it. I, I don't know what uh, what it is. I would like to see it. I, I, you know, I'd like to witness it with a video to see what is is going on. Okay, uh, actually, I have another uh, answer to uh, the question, one of the other questions that I asked, and this is from Nick, who, of course, uh, provides often very uh, answers very often. And uh, I asked uh, about what happened in 1763 as the French and Indian War was grinding to, to a halt. And the term is, is used there. I know the, these days the, the term uh, Indian is, is not socially acceptable, but, but historically that war was called the French and Indian War. And when it came to an end, uh, British commander Lord Geoffrey Amherst suggested that the number of, of uh, uh, native tribes that were loyal to the French should be reduced with a form of biological warfare. And the question was, what did he suggest? Well, Amherst aimed to infect the natives, believe it or not, with smallpox. Uh, and his uh, subordinate, who was Colonel Henry Bouquet, carried out the mission by distributing blankets contaminated with extracts from smallpox postules among the uh, Indian tribes. And it worked. Within a short time, smallpox raged among these tribes. 
Well, that war that we're talking about here was um, fought between 1754 and 1763. And of course, it hits home to us here because it was fought in, in, uh, in our neighborhood. And this was the war between colonies of British America and those of New France. And this, of course, was the war uh, during which the Acadians were expelled. And many of them ended up in, in the U.S., especially in Louisiana, where they mispronounced uh, Acadian as Cadian, which eventually became Cajun. And uh, that is the term that is still used. And of course, we know all about Cajun food, which is usually very, very spicy. Anyway, during this war, Quebec fell in 1759. And that, of course, was the classic Battle of the Plains of Abraham. Uh, it was so-called because uh, there had been a farm on those plains and the name of the farmer was, was Abraham. Anyway, you know, that great battle, which we have read so much about in history, only lasted about an hour. But both the generals who led the opposing armies, Montcalm for the French and Wolfe uh, on the British side, both of them died during that battle from bullet wounds. Just a year later, Montreal fell to the British in 1760. And finally, the war ended in 1763 when the French ceded Canada to the British with the Treaty of Paris. Well, this, this was an abomination, of course, infecting the, the natives with smallpox, but it was not the first time that smallpox was used in this fashion. The Spanish conquistador, Francisco Pizarro, gave smallpox contaminated clothing to natives in South America in 1528. And even earlier than that, in 1520, Hernando Cortez, this is different because this was unwitting, but he caused the virtual extermination of natives of Central America and Mexico by introducing smallpox inadvertently because some of his uh, soldiers carried smallpox to, um, uh, to the Americas. And of course, the natives there had no immunity against this, uh, this disease. So this was one of the first uses uh, of biological warfare in the French and Indian War. And of course, since that time, unfortunately, many, many other types of biological warfare have been uh, developed and various nerve gases have been developed. And, uh, you know, it's been said that uh, man's ingenu ingenuity uh, really rises to the fore when it comes to killing others. Imagine if all of that effort that um, historically has been designed to create weapons and uh, chemical weapons and biological weapons had been put to more beneficial uses. Imagine how advanced we would have been by now. So anyway, we had those questions answered. So of course, I will replace those, uh, those uh, with other questions, but we still have the one that I asked, what work of fiction precipitated the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906 in the United States. And uh, uh, what fruit was called mala in sala, or unhealthy apple, by Italians until the 19th century? So <laughs> think about those. All right, the Italians called it mala in sala, which of course translates as unhealthy apple, until the 19th century. What was that? And then the major law that was passed in 1906 in the United States, the first Pure Food and Drug Act, 
was precipitated by a work of fiction, and I would like to know what uh, that uh, uh, work of fiction was. All right, uh, so you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take a break and check what is uh, going on with uh, 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 news through CTV. And uh, I, someone, the, the same person who, who texted me about uh, the magnetism and the vaccine is, is telling me to please try the magnet on your arm. So while we all listen to the CTV news, I, I am double vaccinated and I will right now try that magnet on my arm. So wait around with bated breath. Let's see what CTV has to say about news. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Well, I, I got to tell you, I feel like an idiot having sat here and put a magnet on my arm. Uh, of course, it doesn't stick, but uh, I said I would do it, so I did do it. But you know what? I also have a little duck. Well, as you know, I have many ducks. I collect ducks, but I have a little flat duck. And I put that on my arm and it sticks. I put that on my forehead and it sticks. Of course, it has a suction cup on the back. Anyway. Uh, I, I don't know what more to tell you about this this silliness, but but uh, the vaccine does not make anything stick to your uh, body. Uh, the only thing it does is is make sick ideas stick in some people's minds. All right, uh, let's go to the lines and uh, Jean Pierre. Yes, hi, hi Doctor Joe. Hi. Hello. Yes. Uh, go one ahead. of the answers, I think, is hello. Yes. One of the answers is a book that was written by a guy named Upton Sinclair or Sinclair Lewis. I can't remember which. <laughs> well, there's quite a difference there, yeah. And the book, but you're yeah, right. No, uh, the book it, is it, uh, The Jungle. The Jungle, very good. Okay, so uh, uh, let me tell you the, the story here because it is indeed a, a very interesting story. The Jungle was a fictional work by Upton Sinclair, a writer whom today we would call an investigative journalist. And that novel is about an immigrant, Jurgis Rutkus is his name, Lithuanian, and his family who emigrated to Chicago. Remember, this is the early 1900s. And they were determined to live the American dream, but instead they stepped into the American nightmare. Now, this was a fictional book. It was a novel. But anyway, it describes horrors of all kinds. Uh, uh, the man, uh, Jurgis, loses his job. His wife is raped. She dies after in childbirth. His son drowns in mud on the street. His house is repossessed. I mean, it's just horrific. Well, what Sinclair hoped to do was to bring attention to the plight of immigrants, and he hoped to advocate for socialism. But instead, readers fixated on the description of Jurgis's job in a meatpacking plant where rotten meat filled uh, rotten meat was filled with with various chemicals and the contaminated dirt and sawdust and rat droppings and it went out for sale there was a famous passage in the book with laborers accidentally falling into vats and being turned into lard 
Well, Sinclair had done meticulous research, working incognito for seven weeks in the meatpacking plant, but the story about the workers being turned into lard, that was, that was fiction. But the rest was not. Anyway, President Theodore Roosevelt read the book, and while he did not agree with the argument for socialism, he did send investigators to look into meat production. And while they concluded that Sinclair had exaggerated, they found problems with filth and observed workers urinating near the meat and old meat being relabeled as new. Roosevelt pushed Congress to pass the Pure Food and Drug Act and the Meat Inspection Act. And that happened in 1906. And that act banned the selling of adulterated products and it banned making false claims on behalf of consumer products. And this was very important uh, legislation because before this, milk was thinned with water, sawdust bulked up flour, sand stretched sugar, food dyes made old food look fresh. For example, apple scraps were mixed with hay seeds, they were dyed and sold as strawberry jam. And the, the new act, of course, put a stop to, to that. Well, Dr. Harvey Viley had been fighting this battle since he became head of the Department of Agriculture's Bureau of Chemistry, which was the forerunner of FDA. And he had captured the country's attention with his so-called hygienic table studies. And the goal of these studies was to study the effects on people of some common food additives at the time, mostly preservatives and colors. And um, he recruited young men to eat all their meals at a common table. And he started giving them increasing doses of preservatives like borax, benzoate, formaldehyde, sulfite, salicylates. And soon this table captured the nation's fancy as reporters uh, wrote stories about it. And the, the poison squad, as these so-called volunteers were called, uh, had a motto, only the brave dare to eat the fair. Anyway, uh, many of the results of the trial were disputed, but there's no question that formaldehyde was so, shown to be dangerous and was removed from market as a preservative. And uh, this, the, the act, of course, uh, focused attention on food adulteration. Uh, for example, ketchup, which was very often adulterated. And uh, the industry took note and uh, the quality of food improved. And this was all because of the jungle. And it's a book that you can read. It is still available. But remember, it is a work of fiction, although... Uh, uh, Sinclair had uh, indeed investigated personally what was going on in the uh, in those meatpacking uh, plants, uh, and uh, it's interesting, you know, that a, a work of fiction uh, had uh, impact as as it did have. All right, other people, of course, are texting me that uh, nothing that they apply to their skin, magnets, whatever, nothing is sticking, whether they were vaccinated or 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 not. Uh, of course, the vaccine story is, is, is just bizarre nonsense. Uh, I have someone here, not a question, but just want to say that I miss your world of chemistry classes. That's always nice to hear. He says they were the most interesting classes at McGill, aside from anatomy. <laughs> I'm a family doctor now, and I often think of your classes when I do my best to explain complex medical issues to my patients. Those are kind of comments, you know, that... that uh, uh, make our efforts here at McGill worthwhile. 
and uh, uh, we do teach a course. I teach it together with Professor Harp. Uh, first semester, it's a course on drugs. The second semester, it's a course on food. And uh, we already have for this semester, which is starting the uh, first week of September, we have over 1,100 students registered. And uh, uh, last term uh, for the food course, we had over 1,600 students. Uh, Obviously, I will not want to be one of the profs teaching uh, uh, courses in person uh, in September because McGill has said that uh, only uh, courses with uh, enrollments below 150 will be taught in person. So my lectures will uh, continue on Zoom and it works uh, quite well. Uh, of course, it's not the same as, as you know, standing in front of a class uh, uh, where you see the expressions and where you actually get response to the jokes that you make. But uh, we are living in a different world and uh, this is the way things are. And uh, certainly Zoom is better than uh, than doing nothing. Uh, obviously, we have some challenges with uh, uh, exams. But uh, uh, we we are managing to uh, to overcome that uh, question, of course, that McGill is uh, also uh, you know battling with now is is about uh, what to do about vaccines. As you know, some universities have uh, said that students must be vaccinated in order to attend. Uh, McGill so far has not made that uh, uh, commitment. Uh, my my opinion is that it should. I, I think that we should make it mandatory for students to be vaccinated. I think that we do have enough evidence uh, for that. But I also recognize that this is, uh, you know, a very complex decision to make because there are uh, ethical concerns, and uh, you know, there's the question of uh, uh, what you can mandate and what you can't. Uh, but you know, we we. Uh, mandate that you cannot drive fast in a 30-mile zone or a 50-mile zone. We have speed limits. Why? Because we judge that society benefits from that. And uh, I think we're talking about the same kind of situation here. So I would like to see McGill come out with a commitment that students should be vaccinated. But obviously, it is not my decision. It is my decision, though, to go to traffic and check what uh, is happening out there. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are both science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. I had one attempt at the uh, answer to my question about what fruit was called mala in sala or unhealthy apple by Italians until the 19th century. Uh, the answer, which is incorrect, was lemon. So that question is uh, still uh, out there. Okay, let's go to Heidi. I'm enjoying your show, and I have two questions. First, I think I become a vegetarian after the earlier show with all the ingredients in a variety of food. It's a bit scary. Now, to come to this magnet, my daughter broke her leg, and we can feel the screws in the ankle and up in the knee. So... With a magnet, do you need metal? Do you need something else? On another thing is I had a hip replacement, which they had to do a whole lot of things from the hip to the knee, and it looks like a tomato cage. 
I think it's metal. And it is metal, but it is most. Li it is titanium. Uh, it is not ah, steel. It's okay. titanium. So the the uh, these body parts that are used, uh, you know, are made either of plastic or of uh, of titanium or some non-ferrous metal, okay. so that you don't have to worry about uh, getting an MRI scan, for example. Or, well, that's you know. another thing. I'm supposed to not have an MRI because I have this. Uh, what I call tomato cage in my between the hips down, so I. Uh, I'm not sure why the why they would tell you that. I mean, because they they don't use ferrous metals in those. Uh, uh, those okay. Uh, then another question yeah. I have from many many years ago because I'm of vintage age. I have silver fillings now. When the people go on the beach and look for bracelets and rings and stuff like that that people lose in the sand, what about the silver in the mouth? Magnet doesn't go. To gold, no, to silver? Sil no, sil silver or gold are non-magnetic. The only metals that, that will be attracted to a magnet are iron and nickel. Okay. All right. Okay. I should learn more. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> I enjoy your show. No, you're never too old to learn, you know, no matter what vintage you are. You seem to be of a good vintage. All right. Um, question. Has science confirmed the need for people over 60, uh, one texter wants to know, to get a third booster? Uh, well, confirm. I mean, that's that's a tough uh, word to to explain. Uh, no, there have not been the proper randomized, double-blind controlled trials because we're dealing with an emergency situation here. So uh, you have to make some guesses based on the epidemiological evidence. And what we're seeing now from Israel, which at one time was the model, you know, the cases were way down, but now they're up because of the Delta. Uh, variant and they are using the third booster and so far it seems to be working there so uh, at this point uh, it seems that the third booster is the way to go but no we don't have the randomized controlled trials we are basing it on educated guesses that are made by uh, experts and uh, indeed you know that very often is is the way that uh, uh, science works, especially when we're dealing with a you know situation uh, like we're dealing with now, which is an emergency type of uh, of situation. Uh, the uh, the caller before was just uh, uh, mentioning the uh, her disappointment with meat, and she was turning vegetarian. She said. Well, I, there there really are health reasons, you know, to try to reduce the amount of meat that uh, that we eat, and uh, there's also a, a problem with climate. You know, there there are thousands of wildfires burning in the Amazon rainforest right now, and at least some of that blame can be directed to worldwide meat consumption. Uh, Brazilian farmers have set fire to clear forests. Why? To make room for more pasture land. Brazil, believe it or not, is the largest producer and exporter of beef in the world. About 50% of livestock are raised in fields that used to be rainforests. And rainforests are important because they help control the climate. How? Because, of course, they absorb greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide. When plants grow, when trees grow, they absorb carbon dioxide. Well, the farmers in Brazil are, are burning the forest not only to make room for pastures, but also to grow crops like soybeans. Why? Because they need to feed those cattle who are, are you know, not going to be able to graze all the time. Uh, much of these exports go to China. They export soybeans to China. They export beef to China. 
it's a problem. Uh, in Europe, for example, the Finnish Minister of Finance has called on, on uh, uh, Europe to ban the import of Brazilian beef. I don't think that's going to, to, to happen. Uh, but uh, beef is, is a big offender, you know, generating 60 kilos of greenhouse gas emission per kilogram of meat produced. And that's more than twice the emissions of the next most polluting food, which is, is lamb. Uh, and of course, it's not only carbon dioxide, the methane, which is a greenhouse gas, far more uh, uh, you know, able to change the climate than CO2. It's much more reflective to heat. And uh, that, of course, is also released by animals. So yes, animal agriculture is not an environmentally friendly uh, business. Now, uh, I'm not opposed to eating meat. Uh, I do eat it, I, not as regularly as I used to when I was younger. I, I uh, In fact, I, I very rarely eat uh, uh, red meat. And uh, there is, you know, I, I do take into account the environmental uh, consequence of that, which is, uh, it's not insignificant, uh, you know, as I just told you the uh, the data on that. And, uh, you know, the, the food industry, of course, the meat industry in the U.S. Is, is lobbying very strongly in order to not to have meat production reduced or not to take people's appetite away for meat. Uh, in, in Nebraska, uh, you know, uh, the governor called it a, a direct attack on uh, Americans' way of life uh, when uh, there's any discouragement of eating meat. And, uh, you know, the, the President Biden has been uh, accused of, of trying to limit Americans' meat consumption. I mean, no, that he's never said anything like that. But anyway, there's a Republican congressman who told Biden to stay out of the kitchen. Uh, well, in Canada, you remember when Pierre Trudeau told people to stay out of the bedrooms of the nation. Now we have this Republican congressman telling people to stay, uh, telling government to stay out of the kitchen, whereas um, President Biden never has meant to enter the uh, uh, the kitchen. The Texas um, uh, uh, state government just passed a measure to bar plant-based meat substitutes from using the words meat or burger. You know, so they can't say meat-like or meat-taste or anything uh, like that. And, uh, you know, these companies are spending huge amounts of money uh, lobbying federal uh, politicians, millions and millions of dollars, very much like the fossil fuel companies uh, do and very much like the tobacco industry uh, did. And uh, I think, uh, you know, people are indeed eating uh, less meat, both for environmental reasons and for uh, health reasons. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't say that we should not eat any meat at all. Anyway, let me just remind you that I, I do a, a daily video, which is usually short, about three minutes, uh, on some interesting topic every day. And you can sign up for that. You send me an email at joe.schwartz, that's S-C-H-W-A-R-C-Z at mcgill.ca. I'll put you on the list. Uh, you can also check out uh, youtube.com slash mcgilloss for all my videos. That's youtube.com slash mcgilloss. Uh, I also tend to put these on Facebook, and I do have a Facebook uh, uh, page. And uh, you can take a look at the uh, 
the videos there. And uh, every Friday, I do uh, what I call a Magic Friday video, where in order to get you ready for the weekend, I entertain you with a magic trick. And you can take a look at uh, the one that I did uh, this past Friday. Uh, again, you can look on my Facebook page or you go to youtube.com slash mcgilloss or you just send me an email at joe.schwartz at mcgill.ca and I'll put you on the mailing list. And that is it. We're run out of time talking about running. I'm going to go out and do my daily run. Uh, even though it is whatever it is out there, 32 degrees. Uh, and if I survive, then I will be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>